0: Hi friends and brothers and sisters and listeners. Welcome. It's good to have you back again. It's good to meet with you again. I want to talk with you about something that is a very, which is very much a reality. And it's not a pleasant topic, but it's something you need to hear. It's something you need to deal with. We all do. Um, God is speaking and saying to you, and to me, or whoever else needs to hear this, if not heaven, then where? Or, then what? If not heaven, where? What? I don't know if you've ever been, if you've ever asked yourself this question pointedly, or outright, or attempted to seek the answer or not. I don't know people's hearts but I believe, from what want to hear and see, the prevailing thought seems to be that we, we think we're pretty good for the most part. We're not perfect by any means, of course not. We realize this. But if we just maintain the status quo, what we're currently doing, the way things currently are, just keep doing what we're doing. Then everything's going to be okay, and we'll go to heaven when we die. That seems to console us, or... Be an adequate answer to sustain us in the here and now i don't know how you feel about this does it sound like you it sounded like me before god's word and truth penetrated this thick skull and the selfish heart that was enough to placate me or pacify me but i never realized nor did i even care to know truthfully that this was a lie. To put it another way, heaven is not the default. In fact, it's just the opposite. Let me say that again. Heaven is not the default. Okay, hell is the default. And we will never see or even taste heaven if things in our lives at their core don't change, don't get transformed. And from the inside out, that means our hearts. And we're not the answer. We can't make this happen, friends, okay? I didn't feel too comfortable before, nor should I saying it either at times, but not saying it, not thinking about it, not acknowledging its reality, doesn't make it go away. It is scary and it is very uncomfortable, but denying it is not the answer. As a matter of fact, if we ignore it or tuck it away or refuse to take the subject on and find out what the truth of the Bible says about it, we are only ensuring that it is our final destination. Hell is the default, not heaven. I don't wanna desensitize the word by any means. That's dangerous. And by that I mean talk too much about it that you don't get uncomfortable with it or don't get a little scared by it, okay? I don't wanna desensitize the word by any means, but I don't want it to be the elephant in the room either, okay, let's get it out in the open. Let's say the unthinkable, hell, hell hell yes it exists yes it's real yes that's where we're headed if we don't gladly genuinely and needfully submit our lives to Jesus Christ Lord of heaven and earth he defeated sin friends and death by his voluntary death on the cross and he rose from the grave and he sits at the right hand of the Father with a power and authority okay he has been given all authority okay, on heaven and earth, and all power has been given to him as well. He is God. He has always existed and will always exist. And he is the only means given to us by which we may be saved, rescued from this default called hell. His shed blood applied to our lives is the only atonement for our sins. The Bible says in Leviticus 17, 14, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. This is biological. It's a biological fact. And it's a biblical truth. The blood keeps our heart pumping. Sending blood throughout our bodies carries oxygen to every cell, returns to the heart, and sends blood to the lungs to get more oxygen. So while oxygen is necessary for breathing, while oxygen is necessary for breathing and therefore for life, it's the blood that is the utmost importance in picking it up, carrying it, distributing it, and redistrib- re- redistributing, repeating the whole process. Let me say this again. The life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. So you might be thinking oxygen Oxygen is the most important thing so we can breathe. Well, that's true. But if the blood doesn't circulate, the heart doesn't pump, and the oxygen from the lungs doesn't get passed around. So even before we can get to the oxygen part, we've got to get to the blood part. And Jesus shed his for us. So yes, the life of a creature human or otherwise, is in its blood. Jesus willingly shed his blood for us prior to and on the cross. His life is in his precious and divine blood and he gave it of his own accord for you and for me. Without his blood to cover our sin and be applied to our lives, we are dead even while we're alive. Our blood is tainted and is incapable of of sustaining us forever, right? With the Savior's blood, heaven is our destination. Without it, hell is the default. The Lord God Jesus Christ knows full well about the place he made provision to save us from. The firemen is all too familiar with the dangers of a forest fire or a burning building. And he's dedicated his life to keeping people safe from its effects. But he is human and he's flawed. Though his cause and his actions are noble, they, if successful, are only temporary, right? What about the eternal? What is the Lord Jesus Christ offering us salvation, or rescuing from. Let's talk about a word the Messiah himself spoke of or alluded to more than a few times. It's called Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Now, Gehenna is a word sometimes translated as hell in the Bible, and rightly so. Literally, it refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which in Hebrew is Gehenna, that's why it's called Gehenna in Greek, okay? It was located right outside Jerusalem. Now, in the Old Testament, it's referenced because of its child sacrifices that were offered there. There were idols there, and people believed to placate the, the false idols and to have a fertile and abundant life. They had to sacrifice their very children, okay, which were burned in the fire in the offering. So that's one reason Jesus alluded to it very often, because people understood that Place that horror. Okay, child sacrifice that took place there to an idol called Molech. They were consumed with fire, and Leviticus eighteen twenty one, and other scriptures mention the same thing. Okay, Gehenna is spoken of by our Lord on several occasions. In his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if you've been following us, we wrote about this uh, recently. Speaking of the afterlife, there's a parable, but a very real allegory, okay, that Jesus talks about in Luke 16, 23 and following. But verse 23 says this in his own words. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Okay, now so Jesus spoke these words. He's not speaking about himself. There's an allegory about, allegory about a rich man who died in his sin. And Lazarus, who was a man who was poor, but died in in the right relationship with God. Not that poor or rich is necessarily a bad thing, but in this case, this is what he's pointing out. So I just want you to understand that while Jesus is saying these words, he's not speaking of himself. He's speaking of the rich man. Again, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the, the, the finger, the end of his finger, in water just to cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. You see here, the words torment and anguish. But more importantly, for what we're talking about today, take note of the word flame. In the Gospel of Mark, verse 943, the Lord Jesus again himself mentions this word he says this and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire notice the two words together fire and unquenchable he's speaking eternally here intentionally and specifically he says in verse 44, the very next verse, verse, he says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, the word fire and unquenched are reiterated. The same wording again in verse 48. He says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, we see the eternal not temporary, the eternal connection between fire and unquenched, extinguished, or put out. No relief, no end. Our Savior speaks again of the reality of this place that no one wants to think about or speak of or go to. In Matthew 13, 41 and 42, he himself again tells us, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Did you hear that? Not only is there a fiery furnace, but sinners And lawbreakers, okay, people that are rebellious and disobedient to the judge and the lawgiver, almighty God, they will be thrown into it. This is scary, and it should be. We don't need to act like it doesn't exist. We need to pay attention to it, knowing this is the default, not heaven, and something has got to be done about it. There's more. A few verses down in Matthew 13, 49, and 50, It restates this truth. And remember, this is coming from Jesus Christ's very lips. He says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come. They will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 30 Alludes to the place where the fire is and says it is outer darkness. It will not be in the kingdom of God, but out of it. And it will not be in the kingdom of light, but in the place of fire and darkness. Get these things. Torment, anguish, darkness, fire, flames, unquenchable, torture. All all these are are horrible things to to imagine. but But they're realities, people. They're spiritual realities. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells us not to fear Satan and his servants. So much as he says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Speaking about God, do you notice the finality in the use of the word destroy? Okay, destroy is not a temporary thing. It's over and done with, okay? Did you notice also that the devil can only kill your body? But through unregenerated and unforgiven sin, you give yourself by your unredeemed nature. To the one who must execute justice over your life and throw both body and soul into hell the eternal fire in Jude which only has one chapter verse 7 he speaks specifically of sexual immorality which is rampant today And unnatural desires, which are also rampant today, but they're accepted, they're tolerated, they're celebrated. They're called pride parades and things like that, okay? But Jude is talking about this in this specific context. But he finishes his teaching by saying, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. But there's this consistent theme, okay, of sin. And forever and fire let them sink in and again in the beginning of jesus's ministry and john the baptist's ministry john the baptist who's jesus's cousin and the one who the lord sent ahead of jesus to prepare the way for him for people to understand and know that he was coming he says this i baptize you with water for repentance But he, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, the righteous, into the barn. But the chaff, the unrighteous, the unrepentant, the unsaved, the rebellious, he will burn with, again, unquenchable fire. And yesterday at work, Jesus was teaching me by leading me with questions, which he often does. He brought to my mind that verse we mentioned earlier. It was Mark 9, 48. And it says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We mentioned the inextinguishable fire but he wanted my curiosity to search out and understand the worm part. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. Okay, what worm is he referring to? Why doesn't it die? For that matter, why does it live at all? Why does? Why even mention this? I mean, I, I didn't get any of this. I mean, I you know I have faith and I trust it, but I didn't know. Okay, I had to do a little research to understand this, but. I didn't and maybe you don't either, okay? But though it may be unsettling to some or most, and it should be, um it bears talking about. The the wor- the word worm in the Greek is a is a is a word called skolex. S-K-O-L-E-X. It's a Greek word. It's number 4663 in the concordance. Okay, now in a strictly biological sense, we would call it the maggot. Yeah, I know. It's not a pretty picture, I know. In fact, it's pretty gross. I mean, remember one time when I... I don't know what I had in my trash can, but I looked in there and there was like, in the bottom, there were like 100 or 200, 300 maggots in there. All these white little things it was very sick just to look at. Okay. But that's what that Greek word means. Jesus calls it worm, but it means maggot, really. And I'll tell you why. Okay. it When an animal or a bird or a human dies, it begins the process, I found out. I knew some of it, but I didn't know a lot of it, okay, of decomposition and what they call putrefaction. Now, before anything seems to happen noticeably, or what I mean by on the outside where you can see it, bacteria still are alive in the body, and they begin to feed on this dead corpse. Again, whether it's human or animal or bird or whatever. And when it does, it emits a gas or gases. This has a really, really foul smell, but it attracts what they call blowflies, which lay their eggs on or in the skin or the fur or the hair of the corpse. These eggs, as many as 250 to 500 at one time, okay, become larva or maggots, okay, before they develop into full-blown flies. These nasty little White worms, maggots, the Greek calls skolex. Okay, they're defined as gnawing worms. When I say gnawing, I mean like chewing, biting, crunching, eating, consuming. Okay, they're literally defined as gnawing worms. Okay, in the context of Mark nine forty-five and other passages, they also cause. They also They gnaw the flesh, but they also cause gnawing anguish. So Jesus is trying to tell us, hey, you don't want to go to hell, okay? You want my blood, my salvation, as applied to your life. You can't play around with this. Heaven is not the default. In other words, you just keep doing whatever you do. The default is not heaven. The default is automatically hell. Okay, why? Because... We're born into sin, David said we were even conceived in sin, so whether we when we come out of the womb, whether we do anything or not, we come, we come to a point where we're we're knowledgeable of, of, of good and evil, and that makes us accountable, okay and so what happens is Jesus talks about the worm not dying there when you go there, and the flame is unquenchable okay and, and, and so it's saying that you get this picture of the fact that you're alive. Okay, or conscience, conscious, but you're in hell. You're in eternal burning flames. Not only that, but there's no relief, and not only that, but you've got these worms gnawing on you the whole entire time, and they don't die. Now, whether this is allegorical or metaphorical or absolutely real, it it, it it's it, it's very um um the realist sense of the word, you know, there's no exaggeration. No matter what you say, it's a horrible thing and you need to pay attention to this. And that's why Jesus talks about it. We don't do anybody any favors by not talking about it. Yeah, it's nasty. People might not like to hear it. It's unpleasant. Those are nice words for it. It could be very scary, very unappealing, very confrontational, very divisive or whatever you want to call it. But if we leave it alone, we don't tell people about it and they don't think this exists. When they get to this place, their first thought is, why didn't you tell me about this? If you cared about me, if you loved about me. If you're a family member or a friend or you didn't know me at all and you were just a Christian, you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor, why won't you? Why didn't you share this with me? Yes, it was my fault I was difficult. Yes, I didn't want to hear about it. Yes, I didn't want to listen. But somebody had to make, make things aware. And then you could make the choice. Well, you can't say I didn't know any longer because it's here. But I do it because I love you and dear Jesus' words and because God prompted me to talk about this. If you're dead and you're not in heaven, remember, hell is the default of the unsaved soul. How can you feel anguish, which they define as severe mental or physical pain or suffering, which the rich man obviously felt in Jesus' parable? Now, we know for Christian, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 44, and you can also look up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that the Christian will have his body renewed and glorified and be rejoined with his spirit in heaven and live forever. What about the body of the unbeliever? Well, Daniel 12, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, seems to suggest that those who have died, which the Bible says... Quote, sleep in the dust of the earth, will arise bodily to either heavenly glory or everlasting contempt. Again, the parable in Luke 16 about the rich man, Lazarus, and Abraham told by Jesus, who is gone and can't lie. He mentions words about the rich man, okay, that say, in torment is one description. Cool my tongue, the man says he's speaking to Abraham and it says and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would want to pass from here to you may not be able and then may cross from there to us now that though it's spoken metaphorically okay without a historical historical account but it's certainly a spiritual and maybe physical reality suggests physicality and is a spiritual truth to be sure the point in talking about the flames and the death and the worms is the anguish and the torment and the suffering and the 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 righteous judgment and the eternal aspect of refusing to acknowledge our sinfulness or being broken over it or being contrite in our hearts which means to feel and express genuine remorse and penitence and guilt over an action. We have to see the need for forgiveness. We have to yearn for it. We have to ask for it. We have to repent of it. Now in repentance, it means turn. Okay, now here's a very interesting, I love this scripture. In Proverbs 28:13. God says, What is needed is not just to confess our sinfulness. That's not enough. We can confess things all day long, as a friend of mine does, okay? What's needed is not just to confess our sins, but to also forsake it. In other words, the actual verse says, in paraphrase, that those who confess their sins, that's okay, well and good. But those who forsake, or abandon, or turn from, which is what repent means, and never do them again, okay? Those are the ones who will find mercy. If you keep sinning and saying sorry, sorry doesn't mean much because you keep doing it, okay? But if you want to prove that you're sorry, you stop doing it, and then you'll find mercy. Okay? So giving up this earthly life for Jesus the Savior in order to gain it eternally. Okay, it says this in Matthew ten thirty nine, and again in Matthew sixteen twenty five. Jesus says, if you want to gain your life, you got to lose it. If you want to lose your life for eternity, you can gain it now. Make a choice. If you want to make most of it now, you're going to lose it forever. If you want to knock off your sin, turn from your sins, turn from your ways, turn from your own lustful pleasures and everything else, walk away from them, lose that life, so to speak, now, and gain your life, life eternally. And you got to be wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly committed to him and his lordship and him being master of your life. Now, there's a very, very appropriate and relevant account in the Bible that some will be very familiar with and some won't, okay? And for, for those that are, okay, they may not have thought about it this way, as I never did. But since we're preaching the reality and the danger of Gehenna, and hell and eternal flames, the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to this, what we're going to talk about this morning, and I want to share it with you, I have to share it with you. The historical account, yes, it actually happened, is found in Daniel again, but this time in chapter 3, but we want to concentrate on verses 19 through 27. But let's read the whole account so we're not confused about its relevance, okay? We don't want to tell half the story and leave you wondering, but, 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 about the other part. We want it all to make sense. So when we need it all in full context. Then we'll come back to what the Spirit helped me to understand and what's so important for you to understand, too. And this, too, speaks of a fiery flame. But more importantly, more importantly, how you can be spared from this certainty over your life and this eternal spiritual Existence. Okay. Daniel 3, verses 1 through 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was about 60 cubits. That's 90 feet. And its breadth or width was 6 cubits. That's about a foot and a half. Okay. Uh, no, 6 cubits is 90, 90 inches. I'm sorry. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, which he ruled over. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication to the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, and magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication. Okay? And the herald proclaimed aloud You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, or the pipe, or the lyre, or the tree gun, or the harp, or the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately. Be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, all the nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning and fiery furnace. These are There are certain Jews of the province of Babylon that you rule over, that you're a king of. By name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, Okay, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrat, Meshat, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and these other instruments and any kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have set up, then well and good. I'll overlook what you've done so far. But if you do not worship, You shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if this happens, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will. Deliver us out of your hand, O king. They didn't say this disrespectfully, but they did say it boldly and truthfully and in obedience to God. But if not, in other words, not that he can't do it, but he's saying, but if not, but if he chooses not to, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his faith was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took them up and threw them, threw them into the furnace. And these three men that were thrown in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men and bound into the fiery furnace? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men, and they're unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Jesus. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, And the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies. Okay, the hair of their heads were not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had even come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. But there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon that he was king over. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's really all that I can say. Now, just as King Nebuchadnezzar tried to lure and command people away from the one true God, to worship of the image or the statue, the obelisk, whatever you want to call it satan basically okay satan demon, his his demons and the world around you and even your own sinful flesh will attempt often to do the very same thing that means keep you from being saved from your sins before an almighty god they're going to do okay let me say that again satan his demons The world around you and even your own sinful flesh will attempt often to do the very same thing. Remember how verses 24 and 25 said, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Okay, this is speaking of Jesus. Okay, the son of the one and only living God. And he himself is God. Remember verse 27, it said, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over them at all. That means they didn't even get burned. Okay. He said their clothes didn't get burned, their hair didn't get singed, nor did they even smell like fire. Yet the guys who threw them into the fire that was so hot, they got burnt. But these guys didn't. Why? Because Jesus was with them. That's a picture of saving you from hell for eternally, eternally, for all eternity. So too Jesus is willing to be with us and save us from the eternal fiery furnace if we'll trust in him for the salvation of our souls because he's the only one that can do it and repent from our sins by not following after the world's kings, so to speak, or bowing to anything the world offers, okay? If we do nothing to change through Jesus Christ, the sin that we're conceived in and born with, hell, hell, not heaven, is the default destination where the flame does not go out and the worm never dies. He gave his life to ransom you from that fate. He took your sins upon himself to pay your debt that you couldn't pay. He took and suffered the holy and just wrath of God that your sinfulness brought upon you. He is willing to save you from eternity in the fiery furnace, a very real one. Turn from your sin, please, and turn to God. He is worthy of your worship, and he is loving to save your soul, even yet while you're alive. But you don't know how long you're going to live. That's not a scary thing It's not to, to put fear into your hearts. But you don't know how long you're going to live. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, thinking they're going to be dead by the end of the day, but it happens all the time. In fact, it happens to everybody once in a while. And some people may die in their sleep in the middle of the night, but that's not too many, okay? We can't put our trust in that. But if we don't turn while we're still alive, there's no mercy. Remember, we had to not just confess it, which most people don't, but we have to turn away from it. We have to forsake it. We have to abandon it. Is there anything this world, oh, the, the, is there anything this world has to offer you now or in the future that's really worth that kind of everlasting, eternal fate? Turn from your sin and turn to God. Acknowledge your guilt and ask for forgiveness. He's willing to give it to you. He's already made, made provision for it, he's already done what's necessary for you. You just have to be willing to be like Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, or rather their real names before they were renamed by their captors. Their real names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We have to be willing to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and say to the world, our own flesh, and to Satan, like they did to Nebuchadnezzar Be it known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Jesus Christ, your strength will give you the grace and the courage if you're willing and genuine and committed. Deuteronomy 30.19 says, I call heaven and earth to bear witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring shall live. And Joshua, in his book, the book named after him, verse uh, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, say basically the same thing, but it's so important. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him. In sincerity and in faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell Okay? In whose land you go? Who does the world worship? Most of them not God. So put away those gods. Okay? He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No flames and no maggots. Amen.